0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry Award winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're talking about 2003 Newberry Medal winner Crispin, The Cross of Lead by Avi.
1: I have an annotation from Carcass Reviews. It was originally posted in May of 2010. A tale of one boy's coming to self-knowledge is set against a backdrop of increasing peasant unrest in 14th century England. Crispin does not even know his own name until his mother dies. He and she have lived at the literal margin of their small town, serfs, and therefore beneath notice. Suddenly he is framed for murder and has a bounty put on his head. And that's where I'm going to stop with that because we'll get into the particulars of the story. So Marcy, did you like this book?
0: I did like this book. I like it a lot, actually. I mean, I love almost anything that Avi writes, but um, I feel like, first of all, the tone of this book is really good, like the literary tone, <laughs> if that makes sense. One of Avi's skills as a writer, to me, that make him so appealing is his complete ability to submerge himself in the material to the point that he he doesn't sound like the same author from one book to another. Like the language is so so different. Um, kind of like if you, if you see a really good actor in different things and you can't believe it's the same person, he's like that as a writer. So he gets the medieval, like not only the way the characters are talking, but like the way the languages and the entire
1: book really puts you there. And I love that. I agree with that. And I think it's very interesting, particularly because he has so many books. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's been a long time since I've read a bunch of his books all in a row. But just thinking about the ones that have been honored by the Newbery, they're so radically different. And I think you're really right about that. I think that's a really rare thing in authors.
0: It is. I mean, a lot of times I like an author because they have the same voice, right? And then I really like that voice and I just want more of it. So I read a different book that might have a different topic, but it has that same voice. And he
1: has a different voice for every single book. It's amazing it really is but i think that there is something amazing about the high quality of all of his books like yeah. all of them are high quality like when we spoke with him he was so kind of nonchalant about well is it good i've written this many books <laughs> and at the time i remember being really shocked and now i wish i could say to him yes it is it's super <laughs> impressive and it's really good because they're all they all have something really interesting to say
0: well, and so. I think I think too, part of his appeal is that he is so thoughtful about his approach, you know he does his research, and it's not a dry book that just sort of trots out facts. he just he just builds the world, you know, which is one of the things that I appreciate the most, like if you told me to pick my top ten books. They're completely different from each other, but one thing they all have in common is amazing world building. Like that's one of those things that I appreciate so
1: much, yes. so I, I would like to say, though, that I reluctantly really ended up liking this book reluctantly. why? I started I tried to start it several times, and I just kept putting it down. I felt like I felt like it was almost like Newberry bait. Uh, and I was like, "Oh, of course, it's an important book by an important author, so of course it won the Newbery that year." <laughs> and but then you're like, "Damn, it's such... actually good!" Shoot. <laughs> well, that's what it started. It like took me. It took me like probably three tries because I've been having reading problems because of the pandemic and like focusing anyway. But it took me like three tries to actually get past the first chapter, and then once I did. I was flabbergasted because it was so, it just swept me away. It's super readable. I did think at first, well, I did think at first I thought this is of course, you know, it's a, it's a period, a period book. It's about a kid struggling on their own. It's by Avi. Of course, you know, this just was like the obvious choice in a year though. That's so weird. The books are so different from each other that were honored that year. And I just I really had a lot of questions those first couple times I tried to start the book about how this rose to the top. But once I got past that first chapter, I was absolutely swept away and I can see why it um, it got the top honor.
0: Yeah. Now I, I find it super readable and hard to put down and I don't I don't actually even like like the main character as a person, if that makes sense. But I still like had to find out what happened next. I think that makes perfect sense. So let's get into the story. So this book is set in the year 1377 in England, and the main character does not even know his own name. They call him Asta's son because his mother's name is Asta, and he lives in a small village. And his village belongs to someone called Lord Furnival, but that lord has been out of the country for like everybody's memory so there's just a steward who runs things so the book begins the day after his mother dies and he lives in this just hovel with her they're shunned by the other villagers he doesn't know why they've always been just dirt poor it's awful and he's not quite sure what he's going to do, especially since he, like, the funeral taxes were ridiculous and, and they were going to leave him with no way to survive on his own.
1: Oh, no. He's summoned by the steward of the manor, who's John Aycliffe. And he's told after his mother's death that he needs to bring their ox to the manor. And he's trying to explain to Ecliff that if I do that, then I won't have anything to work the fields with and I'll starve. And Ecliff is like, well, then starve then. He's a real asshole. And so the priestess there is like, come to the church and we'll pray. And so Crispin runs into the forest because he's just grieving. And he ends up going to the church. But before, like he's he's coming out of the woods toward the church later on. And he overhears this horrible conversation about how they're going to kill him.
0: Yeah. So the steward is talking to someone that, that, Crispin doesn't know, and, but he can tell that he's, like, a well-off person by his clothes. And it turns out that the conversation that they're having is about him and how the steward has been ordered to kill Crispin. And Crispin has no idea why anybody would even think about him because he's just nothing in the village. He's just grown up as nothing.
1: So he has no idea what's going on. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't even have a name. And he's like, now my mom's dead. I'm supposed to give up my livelihood. And now the the people who are in charge of the village want me dead. So he doesn't see anything he he goes to the he goes in and ends up talking to the priest. But he's there's like a little toady kid in the village that's been paid off and rats him out to the bad guys. And so the priest is hurt by these guys, and Crispin flees, and that's where all the adventure starts to pick it starts to pick up, and he is on the lamb. I. Don't remember the last time I was more afraid for a kid protagonist in a book than when he ran from that church, yeah, and from the priest laying on the ground,
0: yeah. So whoever has done this like thinks it's important enough that they murdered the village priest over it, which is just horrific. This one kid he thought was at least friendly to him sold him out. There's a manhunt going on for him, and he has no idea why. He was just kind of like running and wandering. But there was an indication that if he went to a different town and he lived there for a year without getting caught or returned or whatever,
1: then he would be a free person. So that's what he decides he's going to do. So he ends up going to this abandoned church and there's this huge man, huge hulking man named Bear who's a juggler. And I swear I thought that, that Bear was going to torture and or molest um, him kill crispin yeah i actually thought molest which is horrible and it I, had that tone know, though <laughs> it did have that tone it had that tone of like come here little child you know like like get in my van i have candy it really felt like that in like the medieval way yeah um which <laughs> is like which van? is like i've got bread in my sack i think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, there's giant so, yeah, hulking really thought he man and tatters
0: him. in a barn. That's it's
1: terrifying, right? He's dirty and like he's yeah, he's he really is like, look in my sack, there's food there. Like it really is like get in my van, there's candy. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I I I kept thinking that Crispin is just about to be like absolutely abused and Then it turns out that Bear is just gruff and kind of an an asshole, but he's like has a soft spot and allows Crispin to come on and try and come and start traveling with him.
0: Well, I don't know though, because the beginning of that relationship is very weird. Like he was like, Get in my van, I own you now. And he was like, I claim you. Yeah. He actually, like, this guy offers him bread and seems like he's. He's creepy and ominous, but he also is seems like he's being nice to Crispin. But then he grabs him, and here's the phrase. Crispin says, I don't know your meaning. And Bear says, by the putrid bowels of Lucifer Boy, the law affirms that having unlawfully left your true master, you become servant to the first free man who finds and claims you. You've left yours, and I've found you a gift of God. From now on, you'll serve me. And it's basically like he's he says that he belongs to him now and if he doesn't do as he says, then he's gonna march him back right back to the last manor house for whatever
1: fate is waiting for him, that they're trying to kill him. So he really does have no choice. Yeah, and then like the next chapter starts with Crispin like like scooting into the corner with bread that he's given. It's real it's real rough. Yeah. It's real rough. <laughs> you think that Crispin is not gonna make it. Like <laughs> Crispin is done for like Bear is about to kill him and then wear his head as a hat and then somehow the book is still named Crispin and there's something about him and maybe he's a ghost or (laughs) something Something. but like you're like Bear is going to do something terrible to Crispin That it is very it does very much feel that way
0: and I don't know why but like this whole thing the whole way through had a very like Game of Thrones feel to it to me like it is not about anything that Game of Thrones is about, mostly, but it it just had that like anybody could get killed or hurt or tortured at any minute. You just don't know.
1: It did have that feeling in in common, I think, with Game of Thrones from my perspective, but it also was very like the classroom cut of of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, so but- like you'd be like. You'd be like Okay, so I as an adult having had exposure to other things set in this time period know that there was a lot of pus and gore and sores and like people just smelled and like there was like a lot of dung and, you know, a lot of torturing things and just like even if you had a good life, you really lived until maybe like – 20 but you also probably had some horrible like ailment and or malady and or disfigurement and you know it's like it really that it did feel kind of like the time that in high school for some reason my English teacher brought in and watched Romeo and Juliet like the Italian one and but she in the library they only had this classroom cut and it was basically 45 minutes and it had... <laughs> It had the score and it had, like, them dancing and it had them running in fields. But, like, all the sex, all the fighting, everything was cut out of it. So it was just like, oh, they're these pretty teenagers who run around and dance and then they're just dead. Hmm. So mysterious. It felt a little bit like that. But, I mean, what else are you going to do in a kid's book about this time period, right? Yes, this is true. You can't have that
0: stuff in there. Well, so it's very so, that's a weird thing about Bear's character because he, he begins in this terrifying way he gets compared to a demon and he like hurts like he grabs he grabs Crispin so hard that he hurts him and he's like you belong to me. You have to do everything I say. I'm your master forever. And so that is a really awful way to start off, but he is actually like
1: nice to Crispin. He ends up being begrudgingly nice to Crispin. And I thought that was a really good character development. but i I think if it a masterful storyteller for me to buy that, that he was actually just had a rough exterior and was kind of intentionally scaring Crispin mm-hmm. to see what Crispin would do. But I think that in in like these characters in this Another writer, I wouldn't have bought it and I would have been like, you had to sanitize this because your editor told you to. There was enough of a trajectory of him like being gruff and mean and then kind of explaining the social system of of being on the road and being an entertainer and then like him kind of slowly softening toward Crispin that I bought. Well, and also though, it comes to light later that Bear is
0: actually a spy working for sort of social change. So, it makes sense that he would present a different exterior intentionally to anybody that he met.
1: Yeah, but I mean, like that's like a a mood swing. Like that's that's going from an ogre to like a you know, a puppy or something. Well, yeah. Like I, you know, I I just think that yeah, I mean, I just think that if—I if, if I think Avi has, was obviously able to, like, pull it off where it was convincing. Yeah. Right? By the end, there's
0: a scene where he actually tells Crispin that he loves him like a son, and it is totally
1: believable. So I think you're right. It is believable. And I think we left out something very important, which is before he leaves his first village where he grew up, the priest gives him the the lead cross— to take with him. <laughs> the subtitle of the whole book, yes, we did leave that out. Um. Which is the key, which is the key. <laughs> and why Why Bear, they have this scene when they first meet where Bear keeps asking him his name and he, he just, and Crispin keeps saying, ask his son. Eventually, it comes out that the name Crispin is written on the cross.
0: Yeah, and his, the... The priest was going to tell him more information about like his origins because he never knew like why the villagers hated him and, or who his dad was or anything like that. And the priest, before he got murdered, was going to tell Crispin more information. Of course, he got killed first. But he did say that his mom had written on the cross this lead cross that Crispin wears herself, which he found shocking because the idea that his mother knew how to read or write was totally new to him.
1: Because she shouldn't have been able to. No. No, she shouldn't have been able to.
0: And he never suspected that she could. So Bear takes a look at the cross, and he can read, which should be another indicator that Bear is not what he appears. But he doesn't really say anything to Crispin, but he does start treating him with a little bit more respect. And does tell Crispin, eventually, that his name is Crispin. Like, what the cross says is Crispin, son of Lord Furnival, which— is a huge bomb drop for everybody because the the lord that is the lord over not only the manor where Crispin lived, but like the whole area, a really huge area, has just died and has no proper heir. And so Crispin is a bastard, but there are enough people vying for the properties and everything and the power that goes with it that they would be happy to use him as a pawn. And he has no idea like, what to do with that. He considers it a burden and he he just has no idea how to proceed. So even though Bear scared the hell out of him at first, Bear actually, like, feeds him and teaches him to be a juggler and to sort of pose as an entertainer, which gives Crispin, like, a cover story so that he's not a boy wandering on his own and easily found. But also, like, Bear knows enough about the world and the political situation that he's able to
1: like, take much better care of Crispin than Crispin ever could. He gives Crispin security. He gives him him guidance. He gives him security. He teaches him skills. He starts to teach him about what the outside world is like. And that's really interesting to see the juxtaposition of what is in the book as the outside world and what Bear is teaching Crispin. Yes. Because it doesn't always match up. And I feel like Bear is very astute. But he's very selective about what he is telling Crispin. And it's very... It, I don't know. I, there's something... I mean, Bear is an unreliable narrator in some ways. Oh, yeah. But he does do a world of good for Crispin. So, I'm conflicted a little bit.
0: Yeah. He doesn't take Crispin's story very seriously at first. But um, several times they realize that these, like, armed parties of searchers are out actually looking for him. Bear Bear starts to, like... Give Crispin the side eye and like look closer at that cross and take the whole thing more seriously and once he does take it seriously he he's very intent on keeping Crispin safe,
1: yeah, letting him know exactly what's going on instead of just letting him wander around and uh, have no resources and be a sitting duck and be killed um for this for because of his claim or his the claim that he could make on this on this property on the people. I thought it was really interesting and I wanted to know more about Crispin's mom. Yeah. Be- because I felt like there I mean I think it would have been totally realistic, if you want to say realistic, that a, a young boy who came from nothing is now told that he could have all the power in the in the geographical area that he's ever known. That he would jump at that, like being rich, having power, having means, having servants, having material goods, um, and he just he just doesn't. He's like, you know, no, this yeah. is more trouble than it's worth, and it's not the life I want anyway. So I really wish I knew we knew more about Christmas mom. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, they do explain that that she was like a highborn lady who obviously had an affair with the lord. And the Lord sort of protected her in a way when he was still alive, but as soon as he was dead, all bets were off.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there is that backstory, but I really, really wish there had been some kind of flashback with with him and his mom.
0: Yeah. That would make me sad though. I
1: mean <laughs> I guess it would be sad, but I would have loved to see her character more, I guess. Because we didn't really get to see it. We just got all this secondhand information from Crispin and from everyone else about her. And that's fair, you know, but Mm -hmm. I just I I just wanted I wanted to see her come to life because I was really intrigued by her.
0: She was very interesting, the little bits that were there, but I think she was basically just a plot device that served to prove to Crispin that the people in power were abusive and cruel and that he didn't want any part of it. So I can see why the author would make the choice to leave out more than that because there was so much going on in the book already.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's just that's my own little selfish wish. Oh, yeah, I mean, totally. I, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, but I totally I completely understand what you're saying and agree with you. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, that's there's a lot of adventure, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's danger. Well, I mean, I think we we gave away some of the big plot bombs
0: but the down like the upshot is that the two of them travel but they go through all of these things and and in the end crispin essentially rescues bear and bear admits that he he loves crispin like a son and the final sort of culminating event ends up with with them being
1: free right so i thought it was a pretty ballsy ending crispin really goes all in on bear being his family now I thought that was really beautiful, and I thought it was really well told, and I was very touched by it, actually.
0: I thought it was great and very, like, and now we can live and, like, we can choose our lives, but at the same time, I I guess I am going to give away plot points. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it ends with them, like, fleeing the city and murdering, honestly, murdering the the steward on the way out of town in front of... Lots of people, like, including soldiers. So I just don't know—this is the one qualm I have—is <laughs> I don't see how they would, like, get away with that. Like, it's great to be like, yes, and now we'll live our free lives that we want, but, but would that really happen?
1: Well, I mean— so going back to this whole like the idea of bringing Game of Thrones as a, a comparison text, uh-huh. at least the T V show. Sure. <laughs> I mean it's like it's like Hound and Arya on the lamb, right? You know, and they got away with plenty of murdery things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually Crispin is very like Gendry, but only Junior. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just the the ending situation Bear literally throws the steward at soldiers with swords and the guy gets impaled and like dies. And I just don't see like that gets back to somebody in authority. Right? <laughs> like they would really I be guess? looking for them. <laughs>
1: But who's an in, who's in authority at that point? If, you know, Furnival's gone, he's dead. Icliff is his steward, and he's now been impaled. Yeah. I mean, I got the sense that the, the soldiers weren't coming after them because they fucking hated Icliff Ey- too. Yeah, that's so true. So they were like, well, he's dead. So we can just, like, we just throw, you know, we can just take the, his body that's on our bayonets or swords <laughs> or whatever, and we can just kind of fling it into the pile or the pig slop, and now, you know, we we figure out the way to go forward or we're free from our, you know, our our uh, bonds of being soldiers, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I got the sense that they, they did not like I-Cliff, and that was one of the reasons why that was even allowed to happen, <laughs> much less that, that Bear and Crispin were able to escape. So, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that's that's the one – so, sort of semi-plot hole that bothered me a little bit, mostly because it seems like it would be impossible for Bear not to be recognized. So if they were looking for him, they'd probably find him. But but the whole story was great, and I loved like the sense of freedom in the ending. That was really nice. Freedom and family, which he hasn't yeah. really had aside from his mom before.
1: Yeah. And it didn't seem like she was really like building community or, I don't know. I mean, like the fact that he didn't... He didn't have a name, like she didn't even give him a like a fake name, you know? Like Yeah. I, don't, I you know. Yeah, I mean she just like let him be called Asta's son. Did she call him Asta's son? I guess I guess I was saying before she seemed interesting, but now I, I kind of would say maybe she seemed interesting and also maybe not a great person, and that's why I'm curious about her. Well, I think that
0: if you were um, like a high ranking lady and then you got knocked up and like just sent off to live in a hut by, by yourself, someone named Furnival. By okay. someone by Furnival. And then you have to go live in this hut. Yeah, where someone named Furnival. And, and you're just being shunned by the villagers because they know what happened. Like, I think probably if she was just, like, miserable and unable She's to focus. Depressed. Yeah, you know. Yeah. That would be really hard.
1: It would be hard. So, I mean... You know, it's sad. The the chain of events are sad that set off his journey, but I think ultimately he leaves the book and leaves the adventure being really empowered and in a much better place, and go Crispin. (laughs) Go Crispin. Live your life. Go Crispin. Yeah. We know that he survives at least one other book. (laughs) Yes.
0: Okay, so there are two sequels um, to make a trilogy. One is called Crispin at the Edge of the World, and then the third one is Crispin the End of Time.
1: Maybe he dies at the end of that I don't one. Know. I it should sounds like a, it sounds like a die at the end of the it sounds like a die at the end of the book title. It does a little bit. it does. and I mean, during that time period, people didn't live very long. so like it wouldn't be like sad sad. It would just be like, well, that was his natural lifespan. That's true. That's
0: true. I think if you can avoid a medieval dental work, it's worth dying early. I, I that's oh, <laughs> honestly like that's that's the horror part for me, like the medieval lifestyle like I could live with a lot of those things, but like the dental
1: work mm-mm, mm-mm. <clears throat> I mean I, I think that I mean yes, I think all of the medical procedures were very experimental and very um made up on the fly. I don't think I could live with the smell I mean I know that you would just grow up around it and you'd be like it would be like, oh, just everyone smells horrible but like I just like if I time traveled, I would be – I would go into a hut on the <laughs> on the edge of town and be the outcast because I would just be like, I don't want anyone to smell me. I don't want to smell anyone else. I don't know. I'm imagine like, with my ox. Mm, imagine the fleas. You know? The fleas. Oh, God, the fleas. I mean, it's a wonder that they survived enough for us to eventually show up hundreds of years later. But, you know, I, I'm glad they did. Yeah, I mean this was that was the time when they would like drill holes in your head if you had a headache and shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. So yeah. Very scary.
0: Do you have any read likes, Marcy? I do. So one of the books that first got me like actually looking at Newberries was Adam of the Road by Elizabeth Gray. That was a Newberry book in 1943. And that was also set in like thirteenth century England. And it was about a boy named Adam who goes out on the road and has like a, a very similar feeling journey. it's lacking some of the like distinct terrors of this book, but Really, really enjoyable read, and uh, my copy is so beat up and worn because I've been reading it since I was about nine years old. <laughs> like I really love that book. And then the other book that this reminds me of is Sherwood by Robin McKinley, which if you've never read that, it's one of my favorite books in the whole world, and it is basically the Robin Hood story, and the way it reminds me of Crispin is because that version of Robin Hood basically the same thing happens to robin as happens to crispin like through no fault of his own and through like this bullying atmosphere he is kind of well he actually does end up killing somebody but it's it's not on purpose and he's really been pushed into it and he's been pushed out of his home and his living in kind of like a surf you know overlord situation and he has to take off through the woods and he ends up in Sherwood forest with a new family of outlaws the way that Crispin ends up with Bear and it's really only the beginning part of it where they're very very similar but it's such an amazing amazing book that you just don't want to put it down and it ends in a very interesting way too that parallels this book a little bit but it, the characters in it are older but I would still recommend it for anybody
1: hmm. that sounds really cool I Both love, that book. love I mean, that book I knew about <laughs> Adam of the Road didn't I get you a copy of Sherwood?
0: Yes, because my other copy fell apart.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember giving it to you for your birthday one year, but um, yeah, but I had never read it.
0: Yeah, actually, so she, we'll, t- we'll talk about her later because um, she has two Newbery books in, in a different set of years than we've covered. My read-alike is
1: Castle by David McCauley.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a cool tangent
1: to go on from this book. With, with our read-alikes, because we have so many white dude authors or just white authors over the history, because that's the Newberry. I try to find diverse voices, but with, <laughs> with a book set in this time frame, it's I, I couldn't find anything that really matched. So I went with architectural and scenery-alike reading. So Castle by David McCauley, it's an older kid picture book. It's based on Titius, Lord Kevin, um, and his castle. And there's very detailed drawings of the castle and different parts of the castle. There's like blueprints of the castle and the surrounding areas. And there's just like the drama and the daily life of living in Lord Kevin's castle, which set, is set in the imaginary town of Aber Aberwynver, <laughs> which is supposedly in Wales. It's a shorter read, but it has a lot of the same... Structures, a lot of the same. I mean, it has the feel, and of course, it also has the drawings in it. So, if you wanted to uh, spend a little more time in that time period, then um, this was a good, a good next book to pick up.
0: While we are not doing our drinks right now, because we are still separated thanks to COVID, we have lots of choices for that episode when we do drinks for all of our episodes when we come back, because I personally think Crispin cider is an awesome choice, but you had a you had a creepier one in mind, right?
1: I found, I found a recipe for plague water.
0: <laughs> Why are you making like me a, drink those like things. A,
1: for like a cocktail made of plague water. I mean, but it's like a facsimile. It's not like an actual, it's not actually like water with like, you know, mouse hair in it. It's like, you know, it's like a facsimile of like bilge water. I don't know. I have the recipe and I have like the stuff back, but it's like an aromatic, like an herb, herby water. And then you you mix it with like some, you know, kind of base basic liquors. But I don't have the recipe in front of me, but I'm excited to try it out. But you, just want you don't it. have to. I'll just be like, I'll just have my circus peanut, and oh, I'll no. have the plague water, and I'll just like after that, I'll have some kind of gastronomic event, and I'll just expire. So, please don't. Season five will be my last season, and that's that's just it. That's my circus peanut and plague water. Um, <laughs> oh, it's gonna be terrible. This episode is the last episode of season five of the Newbery Tart Podcast. Our sixth season will be the 1991 and 1992 Newbery books, the honors and the winners. We're combining the two because there were so few books in each of the years. We hope you'll continue to join us. Please rate and review us on
0: Facebook, iTunes, and anywhere that you care to listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on our website at newberytart.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton ukulele band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, dot com.